0: Good morning. Happy uh, Daylight Savings Day to you. This is literally my third favorite holiday of the year. Um, I love it. So I know this morning probably felt like a trial or tribulation to you, maybe, having to wake up. But uh, we have the hope that tonight, the sun is going to be out until almost 7.30. So um, yeah, yeah, the joy comes after the, in the morning or something, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Uh, We're in John 16 this morning, Um, great passage. Uh, No matter where you are this morning, uh, we all walk in here with a commonality. I mean, we're all human, and so we all have a lot of things in common, but we all walk in here with a commonality this morning, and that is that we are all going through something. Like all of us are going through something. And some of you might be going through something that's just the worst possible thing you've ever had to walk through in your life. Uh, Some of you might just be going through something that you would attribute to as minor and insignificant. But nonetheless, we all are going through something. And so the question really for us this morning is, how do you face uh, your something? How do you face your something? Uh, Do you face it uh, with anxiety and fear? Or do you somehow face it with a deep, Abiding sense of peace in your heart uh, we 've been walking our way through um, the upper room discourse, John chapter thirteen through seventeen this year and um, i 've noticed a common theme throughout i 'm sure maybe you have as well uh, there 's really many themes, uh, but one theme that has stood out to me is this theme of how the disciples have so much fear and anxiety when Jesus uh, continually tells him tells them how he 's going to leave. Uh, the world, that he's going to leave them. And historically, uh, in this section of Scripture, this is important that you realize this, Bible scholars have referred to this theme of the disciples' anxiety. They've referred to it as the anxiety circle. It's called the anxiety circle. And we see the anxiety circle begin at the end of chapter 13, After Judas departs, and um, Jesus begins to tell them he's going to leave, and Peter just bravely says, I will never leave you, I will die for you, and then Jesus says, you will actually deny me three times, and then Jesus begins chapter 14 by saying, do not let your heart be troubled. He begins to address their anxiety. And this morning, uh, the teaching portion of the Upper Room Discourse that Jesus has been having with his disciples is coming to a close, Uh, The next two weeks, we're going to continue on in John 17 as we look at Jesus' famous, lengthy, powerful prayer. But this morning, this is the passage that ends this section of teaching from Jesus. And um, nonetheless, though, this passage ends in his teaching to his disciples right before he dies. This passage ends the anxiety circle, it ends this anxiety circle. Um, I, I want to be really clear to you this morning, um, as I bring up this word anxiety, I just need to caveat this a little bit. I need you to realize what I'm talking, I'm not talking about, I know many of you struggle with anxiety in different forms, and I know it's really complicated, and so I'm not trying to say to you this morning, I'm just going to quickly just solve your problems, okay? Um, I know that anxiety, uh, when people have panic attacks, different things, uh, we, we approach those things a little bit differently. What we're talking about explicitly is disciples and you and me when we face circumstances that seem to just be way too heavy or too difficult. uh, When anxiety comes from that as we look at our circumstances. um, I think this morning is a very powerful, powerful passage. These nine verses are very powerful addressing that kind of anxiety. So powerful that it will, I think, crush and stomp out your anxiety when it springs up. Okay. And so we see these three realities that Jesus gives to his disciples in this moment that I think will defeat your disorienting anxiety as you approach different circumstances and things in your life. We see these three things. We see that you are loved, we see that you are not alone, and we see that Jesus wins. And you see that you are loved in this passage, that you are not alone, and that Jesus wins, okay? I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus starts here and he refers to, uh, he says, uh, these things that I've been saying to you. That that quotation, these things that he's been saying to them, this is a reference to the entirety of the Upper Room Discourse. So it's not just the verses in this passage or the ones right before it. It's the entire Upper Room Discourse. And it's really important to understand that when Jesus says that he's been saying these things to them in figures of speech, he's not saying, hey, I've been really holding back from you. You know, I've been trying to confuse you, you know, and kind of code what I'm saying Uh, Just because the time isn't right for you to understand these things, that's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying instead is that he has been speaking to them in figures of speech because they aren't able to understand as humans these great realities about God and salvation. The things that that they they need to understand about God and salvation, as mere humans, they aren't able to understand those things. They need Jesus to go and to finish faithfully his mission that he was sent to this earth to do. He even says again in this passage, you know, the Father sent me into the world and I have come into this world. He has been sent here with a mission. He was to enter this world and live a perfect life, a sinless life, and then to take our rightful judgment in his death on a cross for us, and then three days later get up from the dead and walk out of the grave, proving to the world that he has defeated sin and death once and for all. They needed Jesus to finish the mission so that, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be washed and clean, so that he could then send the Spirit into our lives, that we could be a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And what did we look at two weeks ago? He says the Spirit comes and he what? He guides us into all truth. He guides us into all truth. And so Jesus says, after my resurrection, I will not speak to you in figures of speech, but plainly, well, plainly about what? About the Father. Well, what about the Father? What does it say? That he loves you. That he loves you. That he himself, eternal God, creator of planets and galaxies and Mount Hood, right, and the Grand Canyon, and the Willamette River that you know flows behind us this morning, and Maui. You know, or uh, I just read recently or heard this uh, week, actually, about how in Indonesia, right, our and brothers and sisters here could testify to this, right? In Indonesia, right, there are so many beautiful islands that if you were to visit a new one every day, it would take you almost 50 years to see them all. The God who made those islands, right, that God eternal God, the God who made all things material, who made your mind and your heart and the lungs that you have this morning, who made your senses and your emotions, that him, that God who created you, right? You're not an accident. You were designed. God made you. God, God the Father, he loves you. That He loves you. Why does he love you? Why does he love you? Verse 27, the Father himself loves you. Why? Why? Because you've loved Jesus you've believed in him. And in believing in him, John teaches you that you now belong to him. And so this Father, God the Father, you belong to Jesus when you believe in Jesus and when you belong to Jesus, the Father loves you. Explicitly loves you with a special kind of love. See, I I feel like I could stand up here right now and I could genuinely say to you, um, I love you guys. I, I feel like I could genuinely say it to you. I, I really do. I pray for you broadly and our time together every every week. If you're a member of this church, I pray for you by name at least once a week. Okay? Um, if, if we talk afterwards and, and you were visiting with me, even if I didn't really know you that well, I feel like I'd have this general sense, like I care about you or, or I love you. Okay? But um, when I get to go hug my son after this gathering this morning, um, my oldest son, Tucker, who's turning nine today, it's his birthday today, okay? So when you see him, tell him happy birthday, but don't tell him I told you that, okay? Um, just act like you knew, okay? Um, but I will hug him and I will say to him, Tucker, I love you, okay? And when I say that to him, I will mean something very different than when I say that to you, right? Why? Because my, my love for Tucker is special. He, he belongs to me, right? And with this love that Jesus is talking about comes a special kind of access. Jesus draws that out here as a result of the Father's love for you, if you know Jesus. He says, in that day, you will ask in my name, verse 26, and I do not say that I will ask the Father for you. So he's not saying, hey, talk to me and then I'll refer that message to the Father. No, he says, he doesn't say that. He says the implication is this, ask him yourself. Ask him yourself, he loves you. The Father loves you, ask him yourself. See, uh, in the same way, if Tucker comes in the middle of, of the night to me and wakes me up in my bed while I'm sleeping, okay? I welcome that, all right? Um, actually, I do not welcome that. But, like, um, <laughs> you get the idea, right? He has access to me. Like, I would look at him and I would, you know, maybe be groggy and be like, what do, you know, what do you need? But that, that, that wouldn't be weird right? That wouldn't be weird at all. Why? Because I love him, and he knows that he can come to me and wake me even in the middle of the night when I'm laying in my own bed. He has that kind of access to me, okay? That wouldn't be weird. I, I love him, okay? Now, again, I love you, but if you walked into my room, okay, and woke me up in the middle of the night while I was asleep in my bed, uh, you would find out that I do not love you, okay? <laughs> In the same, I'll try to continue to love you, but I will not love you in the same way that I love Tucker, correct? All right, that would be weird, that would be very creepy, et cetera. Okay? So if, if you really wanted to do that, if you really wanted to wake me up in the middle of the night, okay, your best bet is to become super close to somebody like Tucker, and you'd have to like, you know, get access to Tucker and ask Tucker, could you go in there and, and you know, wake up your father for me? Right? You'd have to have him come in the room for you, correct? You couldn't just do that but do you see what it's saying here? That's not how God loves you. If, if you've believed in Jesus, Jesus doesn't walk into the Father's room for you on your behalf. He says you get to walk into God the Father's room whenever you want. He loves you. Yes, he loves Jesus, but his love now extends to you. Okay? And I recognize this might be very difficult for, for some of you in this room. Um, d- depending on the relationship that you've had with your earthly father. I just want to acknowledge that. I mean, some of you in this room, you might have grown up with just an incredible an incredible father who loved you well. Um, he gave you such a sense of approval and, and security, okay? You were loved really well by that father. But many of you, um, maybe you didn't have that type of experience with your father. So when you hear father, you think, you know, abuse or something. Or you think abandonment or you think just disappointment, or very, very conditional kind of love. Okay, my heart aches for you this morning, um, but and what I want you to do, I guess, is I want you uh, to play out in your mind all those thoughts you've had growing up. I wish my dad was like this, I wish my dad was like this, whatever, okay. Dream up that dream, dad, you've been dreaming up your whole life. Hey, dream it up. And when you've dreamt it up, I want you to try to understand prayerfully that God the Father and what is described to you about who God is and when he says He is your Father, that he blows that dream father out of the water. He blows him out of the water. God the Father's love for you is unchanging. It brings with it eternal security and approval. I mean, you might have had a terrible dad growing up, but you can now have a perfect father, full access, full love, a father who will always act for your good, who loves you no matter how many times you've screwed up. That kind of father. You are loved, loved with a special kind of love that gives you access that you could have never imagined. This is so important, you guys, because much of our fear and anxiety in life is tethered to our doubts that people will love us. Do you know this? I mean, We were, we were made and designed to experience love, God-like love, because we're made in God's image, who the Bible himself, the Bible itself says God is love. And so we were, we were made to experience love, and, and so many of our doubts are tethered to this fear that people are not going to love us. And so we seek it out in this world and we honestly rarely find it. We keep trying to find it, different people and different things, and I'm sure you have your stories. I'm sure we could all tell stories, and some of your stories you would tell jokingly, and some of them you would just want to keep secret. We all have our stories. We rarely find it in the world, yet we see here that if you believe in Jesus, you are loved perfectly, fully, forever. So no matter whose love comes and goes in your life, you can return to these pages and you can hear Jesus say, the Father himself loves you. That hasn't changed. Yes, so and so may not, but the Father himself loves you with a perfect love that casts out fear. But secondly, we see this amazing thing, that you are not alone. Look at verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, ha, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, "Uh, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So Jesus had just said that the hour is coming when he won't speak to them in figures of speech, but will speak plainly to them. Okay? We just saw that. The hour he is referring to, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, the hour refers to his death and resurrection. Okay, so Jesus is saying, hey, it's coming. The hour is coming. It's, it's now here. And the disciples, maybe they're really moved by Jesus' declaration that the Father loves them and they have this access to the Father. They say, oh, now you're speaking plainly. And Jesus just told them, soon. And they're like, soon? No, now, right? Like, we totally get this, Jesus. And they continue on to say that this is why they believe that Jesus came from God, because he's so smart and so wise. Do you see that? That's like what they say. They say, oh, because you know everything and no one can question you, right? We know that you've come from God. They say in verse 30, now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. He's like viewed by them as this expert on life, okay? And we do this with people. Like if I were to interact with a group of people, maybe like um, Andy Crow and um, Jacob and Josh Armantano were like talking about, computer science stuff today in a group and I walk in there and they're talking about their HTML and all these different things, okay? Um, I would listen and I'm not going to go, I don't know guys, um, let me check my sources, you know, to see if what you're doing and talking about is accurate, okay? I wouldn't do that. I would, whatever they said to me about that, if I could even understand it, I would go, oh, of course, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Or Lisa, okay? Like Lisa, um, if she were to say to me, like, oh yeah, my knee's hurting and she's like, hey, you know, if you just do this sort of practice this movement, it'll stabilize your knee, it will help your knee heal. I don't look at Lisa and go, well, let me go Google that, you know, first before I really do that. No, Lisa is like, you know, she's a professional in her field of, of physical therapy, right? And so I'm just gonna go, oh, of course, like you're an expert in this field, okay? You might not feel like one, I don't know, but I trust you like an expert, okay? So be careful what you say to me, I guess. But uh, I'm very trusting, okay? so. Here, though, the disciples, they're not saying, we don't need to question you, Jesus, because, you know, you are an expert in stonemasonry or Bible knowledge. We don't need to question you about anything. We don't need to question you about life. You're, You're so smart. You're so wise. And what does Jesus say in response? Does he say, oh, thanks, guys. It's so nice of you to say that. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you recognize that. No. He says, oh, do you, do you now believe? I mean, I just said the time will come. It will come. It's not now. It will come, and you say, oh, it's now. Do you now? Do you now believe? You see, the disciples think they only need the words of Jesus. They think they only need his teaching, that they only need knowledge in order to believe. And Jesus is basically going to show them and say to them, You don't just need teaching. You don't just need knowledge. You don't just need Bible information. You don't just need insight. You need resurrection. You need resurrection. The hour is coming. You need that hour. See, they think they're equipped to believe, and Jesus points out that through their actions, they will show that they still don't know. They still don't fully get it. They still don't believe in the way that they will believe post-death and resurrection. Once they see the resurrected Jesus, they will be different. They will begin to understand in a whole new way. Again, in verse 32, what does Jesus say to them? Again, he's he's showing them they aren't going to believe. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Here it is. The great reversal. This is the great twist, the great reversal of the upper room discourse. The great reversal of this anxiety circle. Because what was it all along the way? These disciples' hearts have been troubled. Their anxiety is coming from this place, this fact that Jesus keeps telling him that he is going to leave. And Jesus sought to comfort them with the truths about how he's, he's going to return to them. He's going to prepare a place for them. He's going uh, to see them again. He's gonna bring them to the Father. He's gonna send them the Spirit. Right? He keeps trying to comfort them because their fear is that Jesus is going to leave them. They're anxious about Jesus leaving them, but what's really going to happen? this great reversal, they're going to leave Jesus. They're going to abandon Jesus. Jesus isn't going to abandon them. It started with Judas, it went to Peter. Peter was told, you're gonna deny me, and now it's everybody. But what's amazing, guys, Jesus isn't mean about it. He doesn't like point his bony finger in, in their faces. He doesn't say, hey, you want to talk about abandonment, right? You're, you're leaving me. That's not what he does. He just simply says, hey, this is what's going to happen, and when it happens, it's going to reveal to you that you haven't fully understood yet. You haven't, you've spoken really well. You've, you've spoken rightly and highly about me, but it's through your actions, when the heat gets turned up here in just a matter of hours, that you'll see that you didn't even know what you were saying, even though you said some really good things. And so here's my question to you. When you think about how the disciples are gonna leave Jesus, how is it that Jesus can so plainly state that they're going to leave him alone and that he knows he's gonna be alone and yet that doesn't seem to faze him? How is that? Because think about us. Here's the question for us. How could it be? Is it even possible in your mind? How could it be that people who you love who you've, you've given so much to, that you've sacrificed incredibly for, how could it be possible to have your parents turn on you? How could it be possible to have your spouse or your significant other or your best friend, how could it be possible to have people that you love abandon you or pass away or turn on you And still somehow not be overcome with anxiety and grief in that moment. How could you face the anxiety circle of that? Well, it's in the same way that Jesus breaks the circle here. He says, yet, all of you will leave me, yet. So insert the person's name. Do you feel anxiety about their abandonment, right? Yet, yet, yet. I am not alone. You all will leave me, yet I am not alone. My my best friend can leave me, yet I am not alone. My parents can turn their back on me, yet I am not alone. For, for the Father, my Father is with me. You might be saying, well, Jesus just said that. Doesn't say that about me. Okay, but notice here, this is amazing, guys, because this is a weapon in the face of your anxiety. Right? They're, they're anxious about Jesus leaving, but they're the ones that are leaving him. Yes, Jesus says this here to you, okay? but do you see that when everyone left him in his moment of greatest need, he went to the cross empowered by the reality that his father had not abandoned him. That's what he says. And in going to the cross and dying and rising for you, he has secured God the Father's presence in your life. Because this whole upper room discourse has been teaching that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him, that his life is now your life. It's applied to you because when you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. We've talked about this. This is why we're calling this life in the vine. You get his life. You get his benefits. They're all applied to you. So if the father will never leave Jesus, then you can know that he will never leave you because he didn't even leave Jesus. You see, even if you fail even when you're faithless, even when you try to abandon Jesus. He never fails. He's always faithful, and he never abandons you. See, see, this is one of our greatest fears um, as humans. It's this is fear of being alone. Uh, this is not a trite thing, not a trite thing at all. I mean, even if you're like the world's biggest introvert and you're like, just put me on an, you know, an island by myself, you know, not even have to interact with other humans, I'd be happy, okay? All you have to do is watch the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks and no, that does not go over well, okay? Uh, you will take whatever you have and turn it into a person, okay? Like, we, we, we don't wanna be alone, right? We don't wanna be alone, no matter how much of an introvert you are. And maybe this is your biggest fear in life. Maybe your biggest fear is that you will end up alone. That's no small thing. Uh, That's something that I do not take lightly at all. There are many people I love, family, friends, who I know that's their fear, and it wrecks my heart, it really does. I don't take it lightly at all, and, and what's amazing is it's something that God doesn't take lightly. And we know that he hasn't taken it lightly because he gave Jesus to endure this suffering and trial of abandonment so that you could know that you will never end up alone. You're never alone. You are not alone even now. See, if you believe in Jesus, you will never end up alone because you are not alone now. The Father is with you, and he has called you into his family, the the church, right, to experience love and relationship from other people. This is how we most tangibly experience the presence of God in our lives. So this means... Church, is being very practical here. Uh, you, as a, as a family, okay? Uh, we look to people, we're, we're called to be people who are conduits of God's loving presence to people like widows. Why? Right? Because they're a part of our family. And we show them through our presence that God is, that God is with them, right? Or people who are, who are single. Right? We, we invite them into our lives, because we're a family, and this isn't charity, this is love, because we know God the Father loves us and is with us, and it's what we do as a family. We aren't called in this life alone because God promises his presence, and we tangibly experience his presence through other people. Guys, this is an incredible weapon against your anxiety. When you, when you begin to feel like everyone in your life is turned on you, you can go to a passage like this and say with Jesus, yet I am not alone, for the Father, he's with me. But lastly, we want to see that you are loved and you're not alone. Most joyfully, guys, we see that Jesus wins. Verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you, what? All these things, uproom discourse. That in me you may have peace. Anybody want peace? In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So here we come to the grand conclusion of Jesus' explicit teaching, and it's not a word of warning, it's a word of good cheer. It's a word of victory. And Jesus says that he has said all these things to them in this upper room discourse that in him, in him, in him, that's an important phrase, in him you may have peace, shalom, Jewish concept of, of peace was this understanding and experience of wholeness, of feeling like a whole person, or living this satisfied life, and here it is clearly dependent on this little phrase, in me, you might have peace. Well, where do you find peace? He says it, it's in me. How do we have peace in Jesus? How do we have true shalom? How do we experience true wholeness in a satisfying life? We'll keep reading. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, you'll have trials and suffering and hardship and unwanted circumstances that are gonna come your way. And You might read that and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, okay? Those don't sound like peace. I don't understand. He just said you'll have peace, but you're gonna face this stuff. Those things don't seem to really go together. But Jesus said that we would have peace in him. In the next breath, he said we'd face tough circumstances. How is this even possible? He says, but, but, take heart. Take heart in the face of tribulation. Why? I have overcome the world. Jesus wins. I have overcome the world. I win. It's such a solid fact that he hasn't even overcome the world yet, and yet he says it in the past tense. He hasn't even endured the cross and been resurrected from the dead, and yet he says, I have overcome the world. I have done it. I have conquered. I have overcome it. I'm going to, but I have already because I'm, I'm Jesus. You see, the last word, guys, it's not a word of warning. It's a word of victory. And somehow, even in the worst that is to come, the disciples can have peace. That's going to carry them through this life. How? How will they have peace? Because this peace isn't the kind of peace that we often define as peace. See, so often when we're searching for peace, we look at our life's circumstances and we think if my circumstances would become this way for me, then I would have peace. If my crazy life would just settle down, then I would have peace. If I could fix this area, then I would have peace. If this person would stop doing this to me, then I would have peace. We do this, we look at all of our circumstances and we say, if these get fixed, then I'll have peace. If my burdens could be alleviated, if I could just get to the end of the term or whatever, then I can finally have peace. But those things have to change. But that's not the peace of Jesus. Jesus' peace isn't some detached philosophical attitude. It's not a matter of saying, oh well, you know, these things just happen, I guess I'll just shrug my shoulders at it. Or it's not just resigning yourself to the world as being a nasty place. You're like, well, it's just the way it is. There's not much you can do about it. No, Jesus' peace that we have promised to us here is much different. See, we can face any circumstance in life as followers of Jesus and experience his peace because his peace isn't any of these things. His peace comes from standing on the ground that Jesus is going to win. That's where his peace comes from. Actually, that he claims to have already won. This, is on the, this will be on the screen, um, N.T. Wright powerfully said, the world has not been sidelined or downgraded, but defeated. When Jesus took upon himself the weight of the world's sin, when he burst through death itself into God's new creation, and already when he decisively challenged the power of corruption, decay, and death, in healing the crippled, the man born blind, and Lazarus, in and through all these things, he was not just proving a point, he was winning a victory. Not just setting an example, but establishing a new reality. Jesus wins. He's already won, and you can now live and believe that no matter what comes your way, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever person that's hard to endure, that thing that just you, it is stressing you out, it cannot dethrone Jesus. You, you know that he is coming again, And when he comes again, there will be no more insecurity. There will be no more lacking of love. There's no more fear of abandonment, no more pain or tribulation. There will only be the full reality and experience of victory. Guys, Jesus has won. He is victorious. And because of his victory, now you can live from a place of victory, not from a place where you're trying to achieve victory in your life. His victory is your victory when you tie yourself to him, when you tether yourself to him by faith. Uh, just a couple examples for how this works because we're so um, individually minded in our culture. We go, well, Jesus won, I haven't yet. It doesn't make sense to us. Do you know the story of um, David and Goliath, right? Even if you're not Christian, you probably maybe heard that story, correct? So you have this gigantic, I don't know, I, he's probably a terrifying looking man, Goliath, okay? And he's challenging Israel. No one can defeat him. And so uh, Israel sends out um, just the meekest and smallest of them all, David. And David goes out there, and he defeats this giant, right, through the power of God. He, like, slays the giant, right? And so everyone gets really excited, okay? It's an epic story. We've all heard it and read it, correct? Okay? Acknowledgement? Okay. Um, So what happens? Does everyone go, good job, Dave? Yes. Good job. Good job. Now I gotta go face my giant. Right? No, that's not what happens. Not at all. Do they go, all right, now we gotta go, we gotta go beat all the Philistines, but I don't know if we're gonna win. No, it's not what happens. When David defeats Goliath, he is victorious. And his achievement, his victory is applied to the entire nation of Israel. They win. Because David won. Right? Or to put this in modern day terms, because that might just feel ancient to you. It is ancient, but um, the women's hockey team, okay, just defeated Canada for the first time since 1998, right? Women's hockey is awesome, okay? They won three to two in the f- in the first shootout of women's Olympic final history, okay? And so this this girl, Jocelyn Lamoureux Davidson, I think it's how you pronounce her name. She, she buried the puck in the net in overtime in the sixth round of the shootout. And then our goaltender, Maddie Rooney, uh, made this final critical save, and we won. Right? It was pandemonium. It was epic, all right? And when Maddie made that save, right, the whole team didn't go, good job, you won, Maddie. And everyone just goes out there and gathers around her and lifts her up like, you won gold. Right? No, everybody got gold, right? They all stood up there. Even the people, like, never even really played they got a gold medal hung around their neck because they're on the team, correct? And then to take this even further, I'm now walking around Corvallis being like, we won gold. And no one's saying, uh, you didn't win gold, Maddie won gold. Right? No one's saying that, why? I'm an American, okay? I'm a citizen of this country. And so I can truly walk around and say, we won gold. Right? Their victory was applied to the whole team, was applied to the entire nation, and it's the same thing. When Jesus says to you, I have overcome the world, he's not saying, I've done it, try to do it now. I just set an example for you. No, he says, I have done it. I have defeated the enemy. I've defeated sin and death once for all. When you believe in me, you're brought into the family. You're a part of the nation, right? You're a part of the team. My victory is applied to you. You've won. So now you're living, guys, from a place of victory, not trying to achieve it. The circumstance you're facing might seem really difficult, but the outcome is decided. Jesus has won, he is on his throne, and you will realize this triumph in all of its glory someday. And whatever it is that you're facing right now will seem very minimal at best in the grand scheme of this story. You see, peace isn't found in trying to control your own circumstances. It's found in Jesus. Because when he met tribulation, tribulation thought it won. But no, Jesus got it from the dead three days later. It's found in, in Jesus. He crushed this, right? Peace is found in him. It's experienced in the midst of your anxiety. When we preach to ourselves, I am loved. No matter who isn't giving me love. I am not alone no matter who has abandoned me, and Jesus has won no matter how much I feel like I'm losing right now. This is, these are our weapons in our lives, you guys. No matter what you walked in here this morning, whatever, you're, whatever something you're facing, these are truths from the mouth of Jesus that are meant to permeate our hearts this morning and just distill the anxiety that we feel. You can go through the most stressful season and experience the deepest peace ever in your heart. That's the truth that we find in a passage like this. If you'll join me in prayer. God, I just pray as individuals and as a church as a whole that we wouldn't be anxious about anything but in everything uh, through prayer, supplication, knowing we have access to you, Father, in everything and with thanksgiving, we just make our requests known to you, knowing that you've won, that we might receive the promise that we read in Philippians, God, that, that the peace, that your peace, which surpasses all understanding, would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, who crushed death, who crushed our sin, to where every circumstance that I face and we face now, God, you can somehow, in a way we can't see, you're you're using that to make us more like Jesus. So I pray in that, in a profound way, that just might not even make sense to us right now, God, I pray we would experience that peace. Lord, I pray for people who don't know you this morning, and I pray, Lord, that maybe if they're facing bad circumstances, Lord, that you'd use that to bring them to you right now, that they might experience your life, and your peace, and your victory. This morning, I pray you'd make that a reality. Lord, and for um, people in this room who are hurting and aching, I pray you'd mend their broken hearts. God, that you'd bring them back to you, that you'd remind them, maybe just in a fresh way, that you love them, God. May those words just mean something so profound and so um, powerful, powerfully in their life, God. God, I pray we would experience your presence in a way that would transform us, or and that we would live as people in this city that are just so at peace in a chaotic world. I ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen.